Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Well, my name is Kurt Motzinger. I've been asked to bring the word today. I'm kind of excited about it. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, it, it was pretty neat preparing for it. I, uh, I, I'm looking forward to this time. Jeremy's been talking about Corinthians these last few weeks, so I'm going to stay right in line with that. I'm going to talk about Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. And if you're taking notes, you can I suppose you can call this separate and cling to Jesus. Separate and cling to Jesus. Uh, in college, uh, I went to a Bible college, and they always said context before content. So a little bit of context here. Uh, the Corinthians, um, Corinth, uh, is a city that lays between the Corinthian Gulf and the, I think it's Saronic, the Saronic Gulf, I think that's how you pronounce it. And there's a map that Jeremy's going to put up. It's located in the southeast part of Greece, and it's a strategic location. You can see it right down there in the bottom left, Corinth. And then there's another map that I, if you can show that one, that kind of gives you a more perspective. You see Turkey there to the east. But it was a very prosperous city. Uh, it was a Roman colony. It was inhabited by Romans, Greeks, Orientals, and uh, more Orientals than what you think because of the, the commerce and the trade. I mean, it even rivaled uh, Ephesus and Athens as far as the, the wealth that the city had. Um, uh, it was, I read that it was kind of a, uh, a combination, if you think of Paris and Chicago, kind of mixed together. So it's one of those type of cities. Um, anywhere from 200 to 600,000, depending on what you read. Um, there's a lot of slaves, too. It seems like for every person, there's one to two slaves, which I thought was interesting. It's been described as intellectually alert, materially prosperous, and morally corrupt. And the church in Corinth existed in that environment, that very sinful environment. And many of the problems in the church back then originated from the life of the city. Uh, it was known for unashamed immorality. They even had a temple, if you can show that next one. This is actually a modern day, but that is the ruins of the temple of Aphrodite. And it, this, this thing went about 2,000 feet in the air. And on a clear day, it said you can see it from Athens. And there, it, it, it attracted a lot, of, a lot of people because the temple is basically a bunch of was prostitutes. And they called them priestess. And, and it was just a, it was a terrible environment, so it attracted worshipers <laughs> from, uh, from all over. Plato even called the Corinthians, he actually called them prostitutes, prostitute the Corinthians, so that was kind of synonymous. That just tells you just how, how, how bad that situation was. There was no condemnation whatsoever. Sexual immorality was a normal part of life, and that loose attitude that they had was also seen in the church. So for sure, Paul had his, uh, had his work cut out for him. There's a lot of idolatry. Even, even when they would sacrifice meat, um, 
some of the priests would even eat the meat. They wouldn't even sacrifice it, or they'd even sell it to the markets in the, in the city. So there's a lot, of, a lot of wealth that way, inappropriately. And there's also this uh, Greek mindset in Corinth. And there's, you know, being in Greece. And their mindset was that the body was evil and the spirit was good. So they could live a life of, of sin and on one hand and then on the other hand go to church and and it's not like where you know we're taught even in romans you have the spirit and the flesh you know you build up the flesh the spirit decrease we build up that spirit our flesh decreases it's like pistons in a car one's up one's down they're never both up but to them they both can be up so they didn't have uh, uh, any reason to avoid uh, you know sexual sin because that's just part of who they who they were they also thought because of the flesh of the matter being evil that when Paul preached on the resurrection, that resurrection of the body, that was repugnant to them. And they had a hard time accepting that. So there's no doubt he had his work cut out for him. But he had a heart for the, the church, the church in Corinth, for those Christians. He wrote three letters, four letters, depending on, you know, there's different thoughts on that. But two for sure made the Bible, right? First and second Corinthians. And between 50, 55 AD is when he, he, wrote, he wrote that. And you would think that the situation in Corinth would get a little bit better after writing 1 Corinthians, and that was written just because of all the questions that the church had about church life. But it, it wasn't. It was also a time when the church in Corinth started to align itself with false teachers. Idolatry was an all-time high, and... Um, they were, being, they were being sucked into that. Uh, it's kind of like uh, you know, a boat, <coughs> a ship, a GPS system on the ship. You know, they're at sea, and the GPS is working, and blinking. You know, you see it. I mean, the people on the ship, the captain, they, they think they're going in the right direction, but the GPS is, is off. They have no idea. They're at sea, and they think they're going in the right direction, but they're off. And that's how Corinth was, the church in Corinth. They felt they were going on the right path, but they weren't. Kind of like the church today kind of a slippery slippery slope you get on. We get a lot of today, there's this, you know, seeker-friendly compromises being made, social gospel, this non-offensive self-help TED talk type of preaching, sin, repentance isn't being talked about, forgiveness of sins isn't being talked about, judgment's not being talked about, touchy-feely type of gospel going on. And um, it's like back then, it's similar to what it is today. There's an attitude of eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. And uh, the church is, uh, the walk there, it wasn't, it wasn't good. It was becoming diluted. I was talking with my brother the, uh, yesterday about this, and he said it's basically they were kind of losing the fear of the Lord, and that's so true. They were losing the fear of the Lord, and Jeremy, oh, not too long ago, talked about that, you know, that, that awesome respect that we have, that fear, that reverence for the Lord needs to be there. And slowly but surely over time, it kind of dissipates if we're aligning ourselves with the wrong, the wrong people. But it starts with you. Do you guys ever feel like you're losing the fear of the Lord from time to time or your walk with the Lord wasn't what it once was? And that's a sign, kind of what Jeremy just, what he just said a minute ago, you know, you know come back to me. That's what the Lord is saying. That's the, the theme. Jesus says, I'm not of this world. Paul says in Colossians, set your minds on things above, not on things on, on the earth. And the 
Corinthians were doing just that. And that brings us to our text today. <laughs> Let me read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 through 18, and then the first verse of chapter 7. He says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with a non-believer? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Almighty Lord. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Father, I thank you for today. Give me the words to say in your name. Amen. So verse 11 says, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. And he's basically saying, he's an open book at that point. He's treating them as close friends, telling them that he would never have told them, he, telling that he would never, he says things to them that he would never have told anyone else if he didn't have the confidence in them. He's simply saying that I've communicated with you, I've told you all about my life, my struggles, shared his feelings, where he was. And, and that's a mark of love. It's a, it's, uh, Paul was showing great humility. He, he loved the Corinthians. And he said, our heart is wide. Our heart, meaning his, his team, his ministry, Timothy was with him and others. And he's just basically saying that he's not showing favoritism. He's, he's including the whole congregation. He's not merely loving the nice people. I mean, there's difficult ones. There's all types of folks in the church and he's accepting of them all. And that's a love that the Corinthians back then, they didn't really understand. I mean, there's so many ulterior motives with the love. The sexual sin is probably more lust than love. And so he's just demonstrating to them what true love is. Let's move on. Verse 12, you are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. He's saying any tension between us must be on your side, for we assure you that there's none on ours, is what he's saying. The amplified version says, there is no lack of room for you in our hearts, but you lack room in your own affections for us. Our affections for you is not restricted, but you are restricted in your affections for us. Another version says, there is no lack of love on our part, but you withheld love from us. And see, love's, love's a two-way street. If God's love is unconditional, self-sacrificing, um, we can't manufacture that kind of love. It, he dwells in us. It is, it, it, it is a love that, that the world is unfamiliar with. And he is demonstrating that to them. In verse 13 says, Now in like exchange I speak as to children. Open wide to us also. The New Living Testament says, I am asking you to respond if you were my own children. Open your heart to us. He's speaking to them as a spiritual father. He's commanding them in love to open their hearts wide. 
He's wanting the church, the Corinthians, to respond to him. And that's how the Lord, that's what he was wanting from us today, to really respond to him, to have our, our hearts open and not, not hidden, you know, sins and, and to be vulnerable, to be open, to be humble before him. And uh, that's, what he's, that's, what the, uh, that's what he's asking for us today. And then in the next few verses, verses 14 through 18, let me just read it real quick again. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? There he's comparing partnership, fellowship, harmony, common, uh, the word agreement with lawlessness, darkness, Belial. He's saying, come out, be separate, do not touch. There's such a contrast, and he really makes the difference between the two worlds that we have, God's world and Satan's world. And he says, do not be bound together with unbelievers and, uh, or, or do not be unequally yoked. And there's a cool picture. I think it's kind of cool. I kind of like it. An ox and donkey, they're unequally yoked. And a yoke is that beam in the middle, that wooden beam. And... When you're unequally yoke, you're in effect. That's not, you know, sometimes you have a strong ox and an ox that's not so strong. You go around in circles. I mean, they, you know, there's a reason why he said it. And the basis of that is back in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 22.10, he says, you should not plow with an ox and a donkey together. And there's reasons for that. They're ineffective. But it's a spiritual significant meaning to that, too. Uh, you want to be on one accord. And that picture that you're looking at right there, that's the picture you should see when you kind of make you make an alliance with anything that has to do with the world. He's basically saying, stop being mismatched. Don't intermix. In the original language, when he's saying that in Corinthians, it's, it's implying that it's happening currently. It's happening right now. He told the Christians in Corinth to open their hearts towards him. He even spoke to them as spiritual children. And now he's charging them to not be bound together and to separate themselves from the corrupt world around them. But he's not telling them to break fellowship with people who are immoral, but to break fellowship with those who confess Christ who are immoral or to those who are influencing you towards the kingdom of darkness. This command to separate, it also means much more than, than Mary. And a lot of times growing up, you know, I hear this, don't be unequally yoked, and you know, and these youth seminars and whatnot, and you know, Christian, non-Christian, it, it, it does, there's no doubt. But it means even much more than that as well. Um, it applies to an environment where we let the world influence our thinking. And when we are being conformed to this world and not being transformed by the renewing of our minds, like it says in Romans, then we join together with unbelievers. It's an, an ungodly way. It's all about influence. Again, he's never—he's not suggesting that we never associate with believers. We're in the world. We're gonna—we're gonna—we're gonna associate with. Them. We want to. That's the—you're going against the great command, you know, to 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 bring people to the Lord and to disciple them. We're in the world. We're not of it. It's like a ship. Ship should be in the water. Water shouldn't be in the ship. And this unequally yoke or this ungodly influence—they come through a lot of different ways too: movies, books, internet, anything, even worldly Christian friends. 
It's all about influence. I had to read a book a month ago that Jeremy would probably love because it's one of these business corporation type books, you know, that he just relishes. But uh, it, it's, it's basically, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a spiritual book, but I, I had a good point. It's kind of like, you know, are we influencing people around us or are we letting them influence us? It says, do you want to be a carrot, an egg, or a coffee bean? And, and then like, you know, you put a, put a carrot in some hot water, boiling water overnight, you get up and next morning the carrot's limp, soft, no backbone, hard, just the, the environment, that hot water, it changed the carrot. Egg does the opposite, becomes hard-boiled egg, the bitter resentment, you know. But a bean, a coffee bean, boy, that kind of makes coffee. It kind of changes the environment. It's kind of like us. I mean, we're the light of the world, salt of the earth, and we have to change. You know, if we're being in a situation with folks that we find ourselves being changed and not them, that's not good. Again, invite them over, have parties, have fun. But if you're in a situation where you think that you're walk is being compromised not good it says don't be bound together bound together means wrongly or poorly mismatched just like that picture that was up there that's and there's unbalance there they're going to be ineffective this whole idea of not being bound has the idea of they don't belong together it's basically forming alliances or relationships with anyone or anything that is not of god and that statement, it's more than a suggestion. It's a, it's a command, and he, he, takes, uh, he takes it seriously. In fact, the Lord, back in, uh, in I'm going to read Deuteronomy 7 to you for a few, few verses there. Um, that's how seriously the Lord takes to separate, to come out. Don't be bound together and influence with believer, uh, unbelievers. Okay, so let me read Deuteronomy chapter 7, 1 through 6. It says, when the Lord your God, get the context, I got to get the light here. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it, you shall clear away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, other Zites, there are seven nations. They're greater than you. They're stronger than you. And the Lord your God shall deliver them before you. You shall defeat them. Then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them. Show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and hew down their asher, asherims, and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people. And the Lord your God has chosen you. So he's saying, I mean, he, he's to the point where just destroy them all, get rid of them, don't give them a, a room for advancement because uh, they're going to turn you away from me. And that was back in the, in the Old Testament. So he takes it seriously. Now the second part of that verse, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? There is a theologian, uh, I, I saw this quote, I liked it, I, I'll read it to you. It pertains to partnership. He, he, says, he says this, he goes, what partnership can a right loving person have with somebody who does not care anything about righteousness? What partnership can a heart that loves fairness and justice have with someone 
who cares nothing for the truth, who refuses all authority and does what he pleases. And that, that is, that's well said. It's, it's so true. It's just kind of make a distinction between somebody who really knows the love of the Lord and someone, you know, who doesn't. But, but more than that, just, in, in just thoughts, uh, you know, t- 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 different preaching, you know, false gospels, different things. That's just not right. It pertains to that as well. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Um, you know, we're, again, like I said, we're the light of the light of the world, sod the earth. And in Scripture, light is a symbol of understanding and awareness of true reality. Now, imagine someone who sees light clearly and understands what is happening, joining himself or herself with someone who lives a life that that they don't know that they have blind selfishness. It's just a it's a recipe for disaster, basically. And fellowship involves a close relationship. It's a state of sharing mutual interests, experiences, activities, a relation in which parties hold something in common, as in a marriage or business relationship, or even your, you know, your relationship with the Lord. But in First John, it says, you know, if we say that we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. We've got, to, we've got to interact with people, but we can't say that we're having fellowship with him, with the Lord, but yet can you continue to walk in the world and being influenced by the world at the same time? Uh, light and darkness, in addition to the moral sphere, thinking about that, it's just two diametrically opposed kingdoms, and, and there's, there's always going to be continued conflict. Okay, let's move on. Verse 15, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Now, Belial, and it, 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 it means in Hebrew, it means worthlessness. It's not really a real person; it's a description of people who who are characterized by corruption, by worthlessness, and that's what that means. In other words, he's saying the holiness and purity of Christ cannot harmonize with the wickedness and the impurity of Belial, or the impurity of the world. Remember, there's two spiritual families, right? There's, there's, there's Lord and there's Satan, and, and they're diametrically opposed. And the word that, he, that says in common, in Hebrew, that me, it, it's meris, but it means a deep sharing. And, and, you know, that just can't happen with two different worlds. Okay, now verse 16 says, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The the answer is nothing, (laughs) nothing. Um, There was a lot of idols, a lot of idolatry back then. They're not idols today, isn't there? Um, And how does an idol start? It starts in your mind. You think you're kind of doing what's good. It just kind of creeps up on you. Idols don't have to be carved images. I mean, they can be anything, this desire for Wealth, you know, your family can be an idol. Uh, uh, job, um, just about anything that will come between our hearts, our soul, and the heart of God, that, that's an idol. You know, when I was in college, I had this one class, and um, it is evangelism. That was the name of the class. And we had to do these activities. We had to actually go out, and we had to evangelize. We had to do so many, a quarter, a we had to do five or something, but I said, oh, I want to get to ten. You know, double digits. 
So me and my roommate, boy, we, so we planned these different events, and there's a rock concert downtown Lakeland at the time. And we'd go Friday and Saturday night to these rock concerts, and uh, we'd be outside of them. We weren't in them. We heard the music. I mean, there's some crazy folks, but a lot of people need the Lord. And then, uh, most of them, 99.99% probably weren't all there. Intoxicated, whatnot. So, but we did that. We went, chose a different concert every week, and then during the week we may go down to some. I was kind of, not you know, I mean, we, we were too concerned our with being downtown in bad areas at that time, and um, so we did. And before you know it, I, I, I had quite a few interactions or quite a few excursions out, and um, and to me that became an idol. I wanted them to see know the Lord, but. I also wanted to be the highest number of excursions too. It was so wrong. I was like 18, 19, 20 years old. And, and that became an idol. And it just kind of got in the way between my really relationship with the Lord. That's just an example. I know I, I got other examples, but that's kind of funny. The question is, what are you putting your emphasis on? What are you putting your emphasis on? Uh, verses 16 through 18. I've, I've read that a, a couple times. I will dwell in them and they will walk among them. I shall be your God. You shall be my people. That passage of scripture, I, I love that because he's talking about, you know, what happened in the past. You know, we read Deuteronomy and currently the situation in Corinth. But now if you separate, you cling to him, you got this to look forward to, that I'm going to be with you. I'm going to dine with you. You're going to be with me. And, I, and I, I love this, and I love what Charles Spurgeon has to say about these verses. I got a, a little devotional from him that my son Ryan sent me just last week for my birthday, and, and this is what Spurgeon, he loves Spurgeon, by the way. And, but uh, this is what Charles Spurgeon has to say about those verses, and I love it. Listen to this. He goes, here is mutual interest. Each belongs to each. God is the portion of his people, and the chosen people are the portion of their God. The saints find in God their chief possession, and he reckons them to be his peculiar treasure. What a mind of comfort lies in this fact for each believer. This happy condition of mutual interest leads to mutual consideration. God will always think of his own people, and they will always think of him. This day my God will perform all things for me. What can I do for him? My thoughts ought to run towards him, for he thinks upon me. Let me make sure that it is so and not be content with merely admitting that so it ought to be. This again leads to mutual fellowship. God dwells in us and we dwell in him. He walks with us and we walk with God. Oh, for grace to treat the Lord as my God, to trust him, to serve him as his Godhead deserves. Oh, that I could love, worship, adore, and obey Jehovah in spirit and in truth. This is my heart's desire. When I shall attain to it, I shall have found my heaven. Lord, help me. Be my God and help me to know you as my God. And this is a communion that we have with the Lord. And it, it, it's precious, that, that closeness. And, you know, I don't know why sometimes we feel close to the Lord at times and other times we don't. Got an idea, but you know, I, I don't know. I think the closest that I felt in my life with the Lord, I think, is after my wife passed a couple years ago. There was a few months there that I really, really sensed His presence. 
And I, and I know, I've, I've heard, you know, C.S. Lewis says, you know, you know he, he, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He talks to us in our conscience, but he, he shouts in our pain. And so I felt that when I was in pain, he was shouting. I heard that. That's part of it. But another part, I feel like there was a, a, a gap between my relationship with the Lord and the cares of the world at that time. I, I could decipher it. I had that a different perspective. Um, if you think of a, a line graph, uh, like a, you know, X, Y axis. And okay, here's the top one, relationship with the Lord. And then you got all these, your job, you know, mowing the grass, your family, uh, finances, I don't know. And they're all down here, but sometimes they kind of get intermixed. They get up and I don't know. I've learned that the wider the gap, the greater the divide, the larger the delta between your relationship with the Lord and the cares of the world, the closer intimacy you have with the Lord. And that comes with just choosing, really, to seek him. Draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. Um, you know, it, it, it's not always like that, but, but there is a tenderness, there's a sweetness, there's a, there's a humbleness when the Lord, you know, he, you sense him right there with you. And a lot of times it takes that eternal perspective for that to happen because if that, when you do have that more of eternal perspective, your priorities, your earthly priorities really do change. Times are complicated, no doubt about it. We have to trust him. He's a good God. And if we truly believe that we will go through life, if we believe that, we'll go through life hopeful, joyful, and confidence that he is with us every step of the way. It's so important. Um, I, I, I want to wrap it up with a, a story. Uh, it's a football story, so... A lot of folks in here will probably like it. Older folks may like it more because it deals with the 1988 Super Bowl. How many remember the 1988 Super Bowl? It was Denver Broncos, had John Elway in his prime um, against Washington Redskins. And Doug Williams was their quarterback, and he happened to be the first African-American quarterback to be in the Super Bowl to start the Super Bowl that year. I was married for a few months at that time. And I wanted uh, the Redskins to win and uh, started out terrible. Elway was, well, he was, he was on and at the end of the first quarter, the score was 10 to nothing. And I'm like, oh, I was anxious and just, just not, uh, I was nervous, you know. I couldn't really enjoy all the, my snacks that I had laid out. But then in the second quarter, Doug Williams put on the greatest offensive display in Super Bowl history. Records still stand today, five touchdowns. Halftime score was 35 to 10. They had another touchdown in the second half, ended 42-10. And the second half was much better watching than the, than the first quarter. I was relaxed. I was calm. And uh, I thought to myself, you know what? I wonder if I would watch that game, if I would have taped it VCR at that point of VCR. So VCR. And I'd start it from the beginning, and nobody knows that I did it. And we watched the game with all my friends. And in the first quarter, we they go up 7 nothing, and then 10 nothing. Everybody's ah, fidgety, and they're looking at me, and I'm so calm and cool. That's ah, okay. I partake of little chips, chip dip, cheese crackers, little che chips and salsa. Just say, hey, how's your family? How's the kids? Good, good. They're down. Eh, that's all good. And then all of a sudden, the second quarter happens, and they blow them out. Same game, same group of guys, same everything. My feeling was totally different. The only thing different, really, is I kind of knew the results. 
I knew the end of the game. I knew what was going to happen. And I could go through that game differently. And you know what, folks? In life, it's the same way with us. We know. We know the end. We know the Lord's going to win. We, we know. We have that confidence. We have an assurance that he's with us. And that he has our best interest at heart in every situation. It's different than when we know that. The world doesn't know that. Sometimes they may not understand how you can be so calm in these complicated times, but it's because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. And that was an illustration that I wish I could say I thought of, but I didn't. I actually heard that preached 30-some years ago, and I thought, man, that, that just always stuck with me. How much different it is going through life knowing that we know, knowing that we have the Spirit of God, we, got, we have Him in us. To be holy is to separate. Holiness is separation. Our calling is clear, folks. It's to call people out of damnation into salvation. And I'll close with this verse. Mark 1.15 says, Repent and believe the gospel. Don't make any alliances with the kingdom of darkness. That's our prayer. So, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us. Father, we ask that you just continue to speak to us and help us to have clarity of mind. The pure in heart shall see God. Help us to separate and to cling and to go towards you and to pursue you, to pursue holiness. And then we really will have clarity and a right perspective on the complicated situations that we live in today. Father, we thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you are pointing to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.